You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Aaron Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond's content partner. Coming up next on SpyCast. This figure of the spy, the secret agent, just really takes off. It starts with Bond, but we see it um, in the 1960s as well in TV shows, other films, um, novels. It's really the era of, of the spy and popular culture. This episode is part two of our two-part special celebrating the 70th anniversary of James Bond. If you haven't checked out part one yet, be sure to listen to that episode before this one. In this episode, Andrew and Alexis discuss Ian Fleming and how his life in many ways inspired elements of the Bond books, Bond merchandise from our collection, including a 1965 James Bond attache case, and Bond's necessary adaptation to the past seven decades of changing social times. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and loved ones. Please also consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006. We are 17 years strong. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So let's go on to the Life magazine that's in front of us. This is, a, I think, an interesting way to just talk about some of Fleming's overlapping interests with the character of James Bond. Yeah, we've got uh, Life magazine. It's from October 7th, 1966. And on the cover is large photo. It's actually just part of a photo. It shows Fleming in, in his car. It's a open top. Let me see. I'm not sure what kind of car this is. You I, probably I, I, know better than I. Yeah, I believe it's a four and a half liter Bentley. There you go. Which four and a half a liter Bentley. cars are not not common at all mm. in the UK. And a Bentley is what Bond drives in the books, not an Aston Martin. Well, he does sometimes, <laughs> but originally that was his own car. It was a Bentley. So we've got Fleming behind the wheel of a Bentley on the front of Life magazine from 1966. Yeah, I mean, in 1966, my goodness, the films were hugely, hugely popular. Fleming's actually already been dead for a couple of years, but uh, and it, this is the, the the story that is featured on on the front of the magazine is alias James Bond, the real story of Ian Fleming. The Bond films are hugely popular still, and so there would have been a lot of interest in the author of the Bond novels and the real story of Ian Fleming. Because the real story of Ian Fleming, in many ways, sort of did have some interesting parallels with James Bond. I mean, 
Fleming, as we've talked about, was in naval intelligence during World War II. He wasn't uh, working uh, for MI6, as far as I know, um, at least not officially or in any real full-time sense uh, after the war. But, you know, many of Bond's tastes uh, certainly reflect Fleming's own tastes. Fleming also uh, enjoyed good food and travel. He also um, got his suits from the best tailors. He smoked the same cigarettes as uh, Bond did. We'll get to that later. Um, and so, you know, he based the character very much on his own tastes and and interests. And he was interested, Fleming also certainly was interested in women. We know he had various affairs. And I think his taste in women, Bond's taste in women, also to a large extent echoes Fleming's own tastes. And then his 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 some of his background, Bond was a naval officer, Commander Bond. That was, you know, Fleming was borrowing from what he knew. I think that's what's important. And I think with the success of the novels in the, in the 50s um, and then the films, it must have been fun for Fleming to sort of revel in this idea that Fleming and his lifestyle in some way echoed Bond and his, and his lifestyle as well. I think he enjoyed that very much. I think that with um, Ian Fleming, you know, you touched on that there. It's not like Ian Fleming likes eating gruel and, you know, soggy mashed pe- mashed peas and potatoes. Uh, he's, a, he's a real bon vivant. He's got quite, you know, yeah, has so a really sophisticated knowledge of food and so forth quite sophisticated and expensive tastes and cigarettes, alcohol, uh, hotels, these sorts of places. So this does mirror one of the things that people find really attractive about Bond. I think the films actually bring that to a a different point than the novels do. (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, at least in the novels, sort of Fleming's Bond has, certainly has sophisticated tastes, but they're I don't think he would necessarily think that they... It doesn't have to be the the finest hotel. He has very distinct tastes and opinions. So, and he's really a creature of habit. (laughs) He smokes the same cigarettes. He has the same breakfast up, you know, scrambled eggs. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I don't think it has to be necessarily the most glamorous or elaborate I think the films really take that to a higher level. But he has sort of a very distinct and sophisticated tastes. As I, and I, those, definitely, those definitely echo uh, Fleming. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Fleming books is how much they actually have those, those details. I mean, it isn't just Bond smokes a cigarette. He smokes a cigarette with the triple gold <laughs> stripe on it from this particular shop, you know. And it, that, that the, the novels are riven with that. And it is kind of, you know, reflecting this post-war age. And I think people enjoyed about the novels was, was reading those details. He just doesn't have any kind of soap. It's this particular soap. His shirts are made with this particular cotton. <laughs> Um, just that particular car. I think those those kind of uh, details that the consumerism, right, that we could return after uh, World War II at a certain level. For most people, 
they were still living with a certain amount of austerity and the books offered that little glimpse in of a, of a different lifestyle for that kind of upper middle class. I, Bond was not upper class, he's upper middle class, I would say. Mm. Um, and But, you know, he... He spends his money on, in, on very specific things. <laughs> <laughs> and even the settings of the novels, I would imagine that when the first novels come out, most people uh, in the UK have probably never been on a flight or never been overseas. So it's also yes. opening up an international dimension to it all. In terms of the food, it's opening up, like you said, coming out of austerity mm. and rationing and so forth. Mm all of these very sophisticated tastes. One thing that I find quite interesting, so Ian Fleming, uh, and I believe this comes up in one of the books, his favourite type of cologne was Floris number 89, mm. à de toilette. I can't imagine many people in post-war Britain were putting that on themselves. So this is, this is one example of, we're not talking, it doesn't always have to be the most extravagant, but there's very particular taste there. He's not just getting old spice and, no. and throwing it on. No, Bond is a, is a man who knows what he likes. <laughs> So I think this is a good point to move on to the uh, some of the merchandise that comes out in the 60s. So we've established the name Bond. We've had a chat about 007. We've spoke about Fleming and his life. Let's go on to discuss the merchandise. So this is really interesting to me because merchandise is not that common. And really before Star Wars, 77, ET, 1982, it's not that common with movies, but with the Bond movies, they become such a success that this, this becomes like a thing. Uh, it's like a proto-merchandising market before the Star Wars big picture era. So we've got some of those artifacts in front of us as well. So tell us a little bit more about that, about the about the popularity of those early Bond novels, the the ones that you studied, so the 60s. So they help us understand. We've got Dr. Yeah. No from Russia with it's Love, really Goldfinger. It's, it's the films um, that launched this just incredible interest in Bond and, and the merchandise kind of springs from that. So what the first Bond movie, Dr. No, comes out in 1962, 63 in Britain and the United States and does extremely well, uh, especially for sort of a you know, relatively low budget film at the time. Does really well, so well that they continue to make the movies from Russia with Love and they just get more and more popular. Goldfinger is incredibly popular and that's followed up by Thunderball, which at that time is the most popular movie in, in the world. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's hard to know, then, but, you know, numbers are thrown out there at like um, a third of, every, of all Americans saw Thunderball. In, and remember, this is in, in the cinema. So you can look at ticket sales um, of, of cinema. You can't necessarily know whether people actually necessarily we're awake through the entire movie, but it's a pretty good indication of people going to see the film. And it wasn't just in, in Britain and the United States. It was really a global phenomenon in the West, let's say. Bond was incredibly popular in Japan, which is one reason why You Only Live Twice was made in Japan, um, throughout Western Europe, in Australia. I mean, just a really, I think, a global phenomenon. And this was pretty uh, unusual. You know, to have 
to have that. And of course, it has to do with the uh, ability in the 1960s to just sort of get that information out and see those films. And the merchandising comes along with it. And I think what's really interesting about it is I think you have to look at it in the context of the times in the 1960s and the, the figure of the spy as this really popular figure. And I have looked into this and I think what's really interesting about that figure of the spy, the secret agent, is that it's sort of somebody that we can all identify with in, in some way. British author Kingsley Amos wrote a really interesting tract uh, on James Bond at this time in the, in the mid-60s. And he, he has this great line in there sort of saying, you know, we don't want to have dinner with James Bond or play a round of golf with James Bond. We want to be him. <laughs> um, and I think it's not just a male thing either. You know, men want to be him, women want to be with him. But I think w women are also able to sort of channel some of that wanting to be Bond as well. And so I think it's this, and, and part of it is, it's not just the appeal of this incredibly suave and sophisticated figure who gets to go to other countries and eat fine food and so on. I, I think it's this, this idea of, you know, under, uh, underneath that, that exterior, that ordinary looking exterior, you know, I could be a spy, right? I could be working for my government. I could be on a, an important mission, you know, to save the world. And I think it has something to do in the 1960s as well with individuality and this idea of people exploring, you know, the self and so on, various different trends there and social trends in the 1960s. And this, this figure of the spy, the secret agent, just really takes off. Starts with Bond, but we see it... Um, in the 1960s, as well in TV shows, other films, um, novels. It's really the era of, of the spy and popular culture. And I think the merchandising comes along with that. It's not enough to just read the book or watch the movie. I want to feel like James Bond. <laughs> and whether that means having a James Bond lunchbox or, you know, James Bond cologne, which makes me smell like James Bond, to take on that persona or toys for kids. I think that's part of the, of the appeal of the spy of actually wanting to, to, to be that individual. And so we just see this incredible merchandising in the 1960s. And it really does start with, it, it just explodes with Goldfinger. It's toys, lots of things that appeal to children, but also adults as well. I mentioned the cologne, but, you know, we see uh, James Bond pajamas being sold at the Gallery Lafayette in Paris okay, and selling out, by the way. Um, so it was also appealing to adults, not just children. And we've got uh, one of the most popular items, the James Bond attache case from 1965 here. So this was inspired by the attaché case that Q gives to Bond in From Russia with Love. And that was an important item in the film. And I think really one of the first Bond gadgets. If you've watched the film, you might remember that scene uh, where Q brings in this briefcase, shows Bond how to open it properly. If you don't open it properly, it will um, sort of self-sabotage itself. It's, it's literally just a place for Bond to keep his weapon. I think there's also uh, sovereign's money that are hidden in there and a knife. Um, our 
uh, James Bond attache case toy here um, also has uh, a proper way to open it. You have to twist the little dials there to open it properly if you don't. We're not sure exactly what happens. We think you might be able to shoot some kind of pellets. Um, but inside we've got, um, let's see, a toy gun here. It looks like a Luger. It does look like a Luger, yeah. <laughs> but it's got various attachments as well. Um, there's a rifle attachment there. We've got some plastic bullet bullets. We've got some currency. I think they're dollar bill dollars there. It did come with a plastic knife, but I don't. We might not have that. And it's also got an interesting coder decoder, which you could also buy separately, but does come with this set, where you can encode and decode secret messages. And it also does come with a little international passport there, which is rather sweet because this was clearly owned, uh, pre-owned by an 11-year-old boy <laughs> <laughs> who's filled in some of the details in that passport, including his, I believe he was four foot seven and uh, weighed under 100 pounds. So <laughs> I, I think that's a lovely element. Um, and, you know, that would have been yeah, 11-year-old boy in the mid-60s, I think, would have been thrilled to get this. I mean, it was, I think, the, you know, Christmas gift of 1965. Um, so he was a very lucky boy. And this was hugely popular, the briefcase. Again, not just in Britain and in, and in the United States, but through, in Europe as well. And uh, he could play with this for hours and feel like James Bond. What could be better? These past few months, you may have heard my voice, but you might not know too much about me. So I'll briefly interrupt this episode to introduce myself a little bit more to the SpyCast community. I'm Erin, and I hail from the beautiful city of Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a graduate of the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, where I studied history. I ended up here in Washington, D.C. to pursue my master's in museum studies, which I'm only a few classes away from completing. I started here at the Spy Museum in our fantastic guest services department. One of my favorite things about museums is the opportunity to directly connect with visitors, tell them stories from the museum, and to make the museum experience joyful and meaningful. I learned these values from my time working at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in my hometown, and I'm so thankful to continue practicing my passions here at Spy. It's been an absolute pleasure helping to produce SpyCast, and I look forward to all the exciting things we have coming up in the future. Thank you for your continued support of this program, and please enjoy the rest of the episode. We'll be right back after this. And we've got here uh, in the code book, uh, the kit has written, I like Sean Connery very much. So and then do I. Underlined, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the, the codomatic is, is pretty cool. At the top, there's a, so it's a, a, a dial and at the top it says message letter. And then over on the other side, it says code letter. So in spy terms, that's plain text. So that would be come to a secret meeting at three o'clock and then the cipher text would be the gibberish that doesn't make any sense. So this is basically a, a, a way for a kid to make up a secret code and, and write it down, which I think that if you were this kid, that this would have been really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've got a number of different items in, in our collection and also on display in the museum, um, which kind of 
give a sense of this just incredible merchandising. I mean, one of my favorites is actually a set of um, 007 swimming fins, clearly inspired by Thunderball, and I believe a snorkel as well. So, I mean, you could go swimming in your fins, and they're not just fins, the James Bond swimming fins. Um, I just, I just love that. And all of the underwater scenes, I believe at the time, this was like, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but this was a path-breaking movie for underwater scenes and has been criticised, you know, more recently because the scenes, you know, go on for too long. But I can imagine sitting in the cinema, this is something that people have never seen before and you're seeing all of these underwater fights between Frogman and Bond. I mean, it must have been incredible. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I said Thunderball was just incredibly popular, did extraordinarily well all over the world. But yeah, I should mention that, you know, the critics <laughs> were not as big fans necessarily as, uh, as, as the population. And there was quite a lot of criticism of the Bond films. There had been criticism of the books as well. Most famously, this is in the late 50s, Paul Johnson, sort of famous British critic, you know, said that the Fleming novels were all just sex, snobbery and sadism, which is not, you know, not too far from the mark. <laughs> so there had always been some criticism of the books, again, from from those sort of literary critics and then the film critics. You know, Bond was, the, the films were seen as being very violent. There's a scene in Dr. No, the first Bond film that came out, where... Um, Bond is actually, he, he, he knows that uh, an assassin is going to come into his hotel room to kill him. He's arranged the pillows in the bed to look as though he's asleep there. Um, he's actually sitting in the corner in the dark. The assassin comes in and, and shoots the pillows thinking he's killed Bond. Bond reveals himself and, and kills the, the assassin there, unloading, um, his, his gun into the body past the point where he's actually killed this man. And that's where the criticism comes in, saying, you know, it's not just that he shot him, he keeps shooting him. And this shows, you know, just a, a level of, of, of violence and sadism again. That film, that scene, it's, I think we're quite immune nowadays to just incredible amount of violence that we see on TV, explosions, shooting, killing, all kinds of things. But in the early 1960s, that was a little bit shocking. And, uh, and, and, and then it was, was criticized. And the, the popularity of the films was for some, a cause of some actual concern, <laughs> saying, why is this so popular? What in the world is happening? Um, the explosion of interest in Bond and in the, the merchandise and everything, I mean, I, I've looked at it and there were articles talking about a Bondomania. And so it wasn't just this is, you know, people like these. They're crazy about these movies. And there were critics... Um, uh, philosophers and so on who actually, you know, sort of think, what is going on here and what's wrong with people that they are so interested in this and, and saw this as actually a sign of, of, of a sort of, you know, social problem. And then, of course, talked about popularity in the Western world. And of course, this is the midst of the, of the Cold War in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. 
Bond movies were not shown there, but they heard about them. And there were critiques coming out of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union as well, which took advantage of, uh, of seeing the films as a reflection of, of course, a cor corrupt bourgeois society. Um, it was easy pickings in that sense to see the huge interest in Bond as being, as, as just playing into that, that communist interpretation of, uh, corrupt, capitalist, you know, violent bourgeois society. Mm -hmm. And help us understand the, the shift from the novels to the cinema as well. So I uh, understand that the novels, they were, you know, they were, they, they were well known. They were widely consumed. Um, there was a number of things that, you know, led Fleming to be in the public eye. I believe that after the Suez debacle, Anthony Eden and his wife turn up and spend some time with Fleming uh, out at the Golden Eye estate and so forth. So, so there's lots of the, the seeds of how the movies could be successful, but there's no way to guarantee that a series of successful novels and you know, a, a series of good connections in British society. It doesn't mean you're going to have a movie blockbuster on your hands, but then we go from the novels to the movies and, you know, the novels we have Hoagie Carmichael who Fleming says he bases James Bond on and if you look at Hoagie Carmichael and Sean Connery, I mean, Hoagie Carmichael's, you know, handsome, but Sean Connery's like on a, on a completely different level. So we have that that transferal from the from the novels to the movies. We have Connery, we have, you know, the order is all changed around for the movies and stuff. And, and it just seems to tap into something that unnerves some people and, you know, excites other people. So just to help us understand that transition from Ian Fleming, he writes these novels and then they get picked up in Hollywood and then it just kind of goes off into the stratosphere. Well, Fleming, you know, was a great self-promoter. <laughs> he really wanted his books to do well, uh, mostly because he de he wanted the money. <laughs> he uh, was hoping to make, make money out of these books. I don't think he thought they were great literature or anything like that. But, you know, he, he circulated with a certain level of people who'd gone to the same schools and had served in the war together, joined the right, the right clubs and all that kind of thing. So, you know, think about the Cambridge Five and Philby and so on. And again, sort of that, that circle that, that Philby and his friends all moved in, uh, had gone to the right, the right schools, the, joined the right clubs, all knew the same people. That's the same circle that Fleming was moving in. Uh, so he knew all these, these people, but he, he didn't have the money behind him. And, um, he would send his books to everybody, <laughs> everybody that he could to try and sort of get on that radar. Um, and they, they did, you know, pretty well, um, in Britain, uh, particularly. And, and, you know, a little bit in, in Europe as well. But it was really the films that took off. I believe it just there were fans of, of the novels who picked that up. And there was a, a show that was made based off of Casino Royale, the, the novel, which was the first novel that, uh, that Fleming um, wrote. It was a sort of a televised version uh, of, of that show that uh, was shown. It, it did, did okay, not, not particularly well. But somebody picked up Dr. No, thinking that, would, that was sort of seemed relevant. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, as I said, Fleming's first novel. They, they chose that one in the series as being one that could be made into a film. And 
yeah, Sean Connery was chosen for that role. He definitely wasn't uh, Fleming's choice, and he wasn't that keen on Connery either. And I think this is some, some is a little bit of a generational thing as well. I think Howie Carmichael came more, you know, in terms of sophistication and sort of, he had that look and persona that Fleming thought was, was more his style from the forties and things like that. And Fle- uh, Connery was, was much rougher and more, had that sort of more rough physical presence. I think he wasn't ideal from what, how Fleming saw his character. But I think he did come around after the success of the movies to, um, you know, appreciating Connery. I think uh, apart from Connery's physical looks and physicality, uh, which is a lot of what the uh, broccolis, the producers of the, the films uh, liked, uh, they liked the way he, he moved. Um, that's always been something that I talk about quite a lot is the way he, he walked, the way he moved. And that's always been a feature of, the, of Bond. But, um, and, you know, again, they were really thinking about the American audience because the success of a, the film in Britain would be fine, but if they could get that American audience, that would be huge. And when this list of Kennedy's top 10 books came out with, uh, from Russia with Love on that list, now whether that was really, you know, his one of his top 10 books or some savvy publicist, you know, who put together that list with a nice combination of very intellectual and more popular, decided to put that on there. I don't know, but it did wonders for Fleming. Um, that was when the books really took off in the United States. Um, that was one of the best things that ever happened to Fleming. Though we know that Kennedy did enjoy the Fleming books and had met uh, Fleming as well. Um, a number of times. For Fleming, it was that from the, from the books to, to the movies, for him, it was, it was really about uh, commercial success and making a lot of money. <laughs> I think he was thrilled. I don't think he thought the films were great, but he was very pleased with the popularity and what that did uh, for his pocketbook. As always, if your interest is piqued from this episode and you want to learn a little bit or a lot more, please visit our show notes on the CyberWire website. Every week, we curate a list of articles, books, videos, and a few lighthearted fun facts that help our listeners better understand the content of this episode or to learn more about the topics covered that week. One of the things Andrew and I have in common is a passion for public engagement in museums. So you can come to our building and see our artifacts and exhibits, but What happens when you leave? What happens after? What happens if you are hungry for more? You live on the other side of the country or even on the other side of the world. Podcasts, like SpyCast, are one way that museums can build new relationships and sustain the relationships that we've already created. The show notes provide an opportunity for you to dig deeper into the content, to extend your understanding, or to just have a little bit of fun roaming around in the ever-fascinating world of intelligence and espionage go to our CyberWire webpage at thecyberwire slash podcasts slash spycast to learn more. (laughs) 
And another artefact that we have here is uh, some cigarettes made by Moreland & Co. Um, so cigarettes, uh, they have no filter, they have three little gold bands around them that are meant to be a reference to Fleming and Bond's rank in the Navy, which is a commander, um, which would have three rings on the the, bot, the sleeves of your jacket. Um, so we've we've got them, and they're they're bespoke. They're they're made specifically for Fleming and for Bond, which attests to the kind of London centric clubbable sort of scene. You know, uh, Moreland's as a as a London company that's since you know no longer in existence. But I think this is also to, to me this also speaks to the change in cultural mores. I think the. The last movie, I looked it up, the last movie that Bond, like the character yeah. smokes in, is the final Pierce Brosnan movie. So there's still some movies where you have minor figures smoking, but Bond no longer smokes. But at the very beginning of the Bond universe, he's smoking three packs a day, uh, which is, you know, a crazy amount of cigarettes, especially if they don't have a filter on them. You know, Fleming yeah. obviously probably dies much younger than he than he. Should should have but you know now if you look at the consumption of cigarettes in the UK or or in the United States it's, it's radically smaller than it was during this era so so that's one thing that's changed but then also I just want to connect this into the uh, another book that we have here Too Hot to Handle which is a name that was given to a, a Bond novel for the American market so the cover of that as well, we have a woman being choked and we've got a very sort of uh, pulp fiction introduction at the beginning of it, setting it up. So, so, so much has changed in terms of the consumption patterns of people in the West, in terms of uh, gender norms, in terms of what's socially and culturally acceptable about how women are portrayed and so forth. So I just wonder to like bring everything back full circle to Bond dying at the end of No Time to Die. Help us understand the end of that world, the, the six cigarettes, the three martini lunches, the, you know, too hot to handle kind of covers to, to where we are now. Like, what are some of the re reflections that you have, having thought about Bond for many decades? Well, one of the things I love about these, the cigarette box that we have is, you know, this was made in about 1970. <laughs> and so in... In the novels, as we um, discussed already, Fleming has a lot of detail on it. it. Bond doesn't just smoke a cigarette. He smokes these particular types of cigarette with the triple gold ring on them and the particular blend of tobacco and so on from this particular shop, Moreland & Co. And th those were the cigarettes that, that Fleming himself smoked. And um, I think what's wonderful is that Moreland & Company then picks up on this ran and actually it. ran with it, right, and produces these cigarettes. I say, you can smoke the same cigarettes that Bond cigarettes. And this is 1970, you know, the date's from. So, you know, again, it's like this fact and fiction sort of um, overlap. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, the, the popular, again, that popularity bond just spills over into the real world. Um, don't you think that British intelligence... Um, has taken advantage of James Bond for its own recruiting purposes. Um, you know, I, I think um, that's probably been a huge boon to them. So, yeah, I, the, the, so Bond and the real world over, always overlap. 
And again, the spy genre has to have that foot in the real world. So, of course, this, the mores that we see in the films, in, in the novels, you know, it has to fit in with, with, with the times. You mentioned this line that M delivers to Bond. This is the Pierce Brosnan era of, you know, you're just a, a dinosaur. M, who's played by a woman, Judy Dench, I think also there's also little quips about Bond and his womanizing as well. And that has changed, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, Bond has to change with the times in order to be relevant. If we portrayed the same Bond as we see in the novels or from the 60s, I think people would be absolutely appalled. <laughs> the, the womanizing slash misogyny, I mean, the cover of this Too Hot to Handle, which is the American title for Moonraker, what we know is the novel Moonraker. Yeah, you know, as a woman being being choked on the front um, and wearing a sort of you know, low-cut, off-the-shoulder dress there. That kind of treatment of women, violence toward women, is not acceptable nowadays. If you um, watch uh, uh, a TV show or a film on streaming service now, at the beginning they'll have little little warnings at the top, and smoking is one of them. You know, you're going to see smoking in this movie. Um, so, I mean, again, that's that's just something that is not acceptable. Yeah, so I think Bond has to change with, with the times. It's important for him to have any kind of lasting power. And, and you know, so maybe that's why Bond had to, had to die. <laughs> maybe that's why he needed to finish that particular arc in his, in his emotional journey so that he can be reborn, hopefully in the next few years, to be the bond that fits in with the with the 2020s. But then again, maybe he had no time to die. You know, <laughs> you never know. And for, for, for this book, uh, Too Hot to Handle, so Moonraker is the third book, but I think it's the 10th or 11th movie. So, you know, that's just another thing for listeners to be aware of when you're watching the movies. Just think about the sequencing of the novels compared to the compared to the movies, yeah. because and that's the, an interesting dis disjuncture as well. The storylines do differ. Some of them are quite close to the book. From Russia, Love is, is probably the one that is, is, is closest to the book, oh, or on Her Majesty's Secret Service as well. But, um, um, you know, a lot of them don't uh, follow necessarily the book, but do take the characters' names. And at a certain point, it's really just the titles of the books alone <laughs> um, that are taken from the Fleming series um, or even at some point, with, in desperation, taking the, the titles of some of the short stories that Fleming wrote. And, of course, we're now at this point where there's, there's nothing left <laughs> to take from Fleming. Um, I think pretty much everything has been used. A few uh, titles from those short stories, and we'll see if those turn up one day. And just to wrap everything up, what the audience also can't see, so we have the table beside us with all the artifacts, but then on the other side of the table, we have Lauren, <laughs> Lauren who work in our collections department and kindly dug out all of the artifacts for us. And we have Erin, who, as you know, works on the podcast with me. So over to you, ladies. Um, final thoughts, a question for Alexis, your favourite Bond, your favourite movie, uh, any thoughts on these artifacts? I'd really like those Goldfinger pyjamas. <laughs> I think that would be lovely. The Bond artifact that we wish we had. I mean, you know, you, I guess a prop from the, from the movies. Oh, I wish we had the Lotus Esprit from The Spy Who Loved Me. 
That would be amazing. If yeah. it was something smaller, I would really love Amelia Largo's uh, eye patch <laughs> that he wears in the movie, the original one, because I think he's one of the most underrated Bond villains from mm. uh, Thunderball. Erin, uh, any final thoughts, questions? So going off of what Andrew just said, and I'm ashamed to say this as an, as an employee of the International Spy Museum, but I have only seen one James Bond movie, and that is the most recent one, No Time to Die. So before we recorded this podcast, I asked everybody in this room, well, if I'm going to watch the James Bond movies, you know, where do I start? How do I start? Which Bond do I start with? You know, should I watch one movie of every Bond, um, every Bond era? How do you how do you do that? As somebody who has never seen a Bond movie before, other than No Time to Die, how do I watch those movies? So I want to end out really with a question for the listeners, for all of you James Bond fans out there. Let me know how you think I should watch these movies. You can tweet at the SpyCast account, send us an email. Let us know how you suggest new Bond fans approach the James Bond franchise. Clearly, we never knew about that when we hired Aaron, so I think we need to revisit our uh, interviewing policies. <laughs> I'm only joking. Well, thanks so much, ladies, for that contribution. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, we could spend much longer, uh, but I think we've done a pretty good job of it. So thanks once again, Alexis. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com slash podcasts slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afua Anakwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum.